Almighty God, we come before you to be nourished by your word. I pray that you would overshadow us all by your spirit, overshadow me with your spirit so that these words will be words of life for your people, meant to challenge us, yes, but also ones meant to bring about life and the fullness of life in our lives and the lives of our families. And also, Lord, be over us all by your spirit so that we can receive the words of scripture that you have for us so they may take root and grow fruit uh, in our lives for the, for the glory of your kingdom. And we lift this all before you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. morning. Well, we're not going to preach that passage from 1 Corinthians for the third time. If you've been paying attention, if you've been here, that has been read, uh, I think, almost three times, three times in the last five weeks or so. Ben chose it outside of the lectionary. Bishop Allen chose it outside the lectionary. And now here it comes in the lectionary. I think I'll save you uh, another exegesis of that passage. But if you would, turn with me this morning to our gospel lesson our gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's chapters, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 make up what is famously known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus invites us to live a Christ-shaped way of being in the world as the way of true flourishing in God's kingdom. Jesus begins his sermon by presenting, as we saw last week, the virtues of flourishing, poor in spirit, meek or humble, pure in heart, merciful, peacemaking, suffering for the sake of righteousness. These are the virtues of the kingdom of heaven as Jesus understands it. And as we saw last week, his claim that we should repent and follow him into these virtues as the way to experiencing life in its fullness of experiencing true human flourishing, this claim raised a very important question. Is Jesus... Is he calling us to a vision that is at odds with the law and the prophets? And of course, as we saw last week, Jesus' answer is no. Rather, he has come to fulfill them. And in claiming to fulfill the law and the prophets, Jesus makes this rather audacious claim that he is the climax and consummation to the story of creation. The story of human history. That he is the resolution. He's the answer to the problem of sin alienation from God, one another, and ultimately the issue of death that came into the world through Adam and Eve's rebellion. So today in our gospel lesson, Jesus anticipates and answers another question. And here's that question. What do these virtues of flourishing, like the Beatitudes as they are commonly known, what do these virtues of flourishing look like? In real life, kind of, we could say, boots on the ground, everyday situations. Now remember that Jesus is, as we looked at last week, the fulfillment of the prophets. And in part, that means that he will guide us back to the law of God and how to live it amid the new reality of God's in-breaking kingdom. Jesus initially answers this question. What does it look like? Real life, everyday kind of ways. What does this righteousness, these virtues of flourishing look like? Jesus initially answers this question in chapter 5, verse 20. You can see it there. This wasn't in our lesson this morning. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Woo! 
well, that doesn't sound too good. That doesn't sound good at all, does it? What do these virtues look like in a real world? Jesus says it looks like righteousness greater than the most righteous people on earth. For the rest of us, that doesn't bode well, right? Jesus, Jesus says this, and it shocks his audience. It would have shocked his audience. For starters, because it was shockingly bad news, because the scribes and the Pharisees were known for their meticulous meticulous observance of the law and external matters of purity and behavior. They were seen as superior to everyone else, to the average Jew. So to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees, one that surpasses and exceeds these super holy, super, super sort of individuals would seem impossible. It would seem unattainable. There's no way that's possible for us. And so one may ask, is Jesus inviting us into a kingdom? Is he inviting us into a way of flourishing that we can never access or be able to live into? Is he selling us a bill of goods? And I hope you, I hope you know the answer. No, Jesus is not selling you a bill of goods. He's not calling you into something that he will not equip you for. But what does Jesus mean then? that you have to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees to enter into his kingdom. So Jesus' claim here assumes that there's got to be a righteousness that is more than that. That righteousness is not enough. That, that is external obedience. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is not enough to enter into the kingdom of God now and in the age to come. Okay, so what then is this greater righteousness? We find Jesus' answer there at the end of our gospel reading in verse 48 of chapter 5. Look with me there. It says, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we might be thinking, well, I I hope you are thinking this because this is what I thought when I heard this. Well, that doesn't sound much better either. Righteousness has got to be more than the scribes and Pharisees. And so what does that look like? It looks like being perfect, like God is perfect. So what in the world is Jesus asking of us? How is this even possible for us? So what does he mean? Much of what Jesus means here hangs on how we understand that word translated perfect. When we hear the word perfect, we often think moral perfection, absolute purity, or even sinlessness. Yet this is not necessarily how Jesus uses the word here. A better understanding of the word here is is that of whole, wholeness, a sense of wholeness or complete. Jesus' idea of wholeness stands in contrast to the idea of external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. This is why Jesus riffs on Leviticus 19 when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Leviticus 19.2, God says, you shall be, what? Do you know? Holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. But Jesus changes. He replaces the word holy for the word whole or perfect because his audience misunderstood holiness as merely external cleanliness or external obedience to the law of God. So Jesus is saying, you must be whole. You must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. And here we begin to see what is meant by a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. 
Jesus is not saying that external obedience is unimportant, but rather that one's external obedience must align, it must mesh with one's internal dispositions, with one's desires and motivations, with one's heart. And that both the external and the internal must align with God's nature and will. That's what it means when he says, be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. The greater righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is whole person righteousness. Whole person, hand and heart. Whole person virtue. Whole person devotion to God. Because this is the righteousness of God. God's external actions align with his internal dispositions and motivations. He is whole. He is not divided. He has integrity within himself. Yet, I think as each one of us realizes in our lives, we are divided. There is at times deep division within us. And I think this is captured so well in the words of Paul from Romans chapter 7, when he says, For I do not understand my own actions. Have you been there? <laughs> do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul captures so well the division that is within each of us. We're divided. That's not God. God is whole. There's integrity in God. Yet Jesus, nonetheless, still calls us, though divided in ourselves, to be whole as God is whole. He calls us to align our external actions with our internal dispositions and motivations and desires in the same way that God does. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 47, Jesus shows what whole person righteousness looks like in relation to the law, in relation to kind of everyday situations that we find ourselves in in our world. In particular, he looks at six commandments from the Old Testament law and reveals in each one God's truer whole person intent. His focus throughout is to show that the heart level, where our dispositions and motivations reside, is indispensable to whole person righteousness. That external stuff just conforming everything on the outside, but not relinquishing your heart to God, that's not enough. Jesus says it's got to be both. Your hands, your mouth have to align with your heart, with your desires. There has to be an integrity in oneself. That's the righteousness that opens up the gateway to the kingdom of God. In each one of these commandments, he challenges us to look not only at our actions, but more deeply at our hearts. Whole person righteousness is not simply about avoiding murder. Wouldn't that just be nice? <laughs> Hopefully we're all that's, all, that's all going very well for us. But it's not just about simply avoiding murder. It's also about resisting the tendency to allow anger against someone else to smolder on inside of us instead of pursuing reconciliation with them. After all, doesn't Jesus say flourishing are those who show mercy? Start to see how Jesus' sermon coheres in itself. Whole person righteousness beckons us not only to resist adultery, but also, but also to address radically adulterous lust. 
The strongly worded metaphors of plucking out the eye and cutting off the hand in verse 29 and verse 30 stress the importance of righteousness at the heart level. Jesus clearly teaches here that God cares about our hearts and minds, and as a result, lust is a serious matter that disciples of Jesus should take radical action to avoid falling prey to. After all, doesn't Jesus say flourishing are those who are pure in heart? Whole person righteousness invites us to see marriage as a commitment not to be broken, and especially not for trivial reasons. Whole person righteousness requires that when we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. And when we say I do, we mean I do. You see, the external matter of making O's, right, those two laws there about marriage and making O's, the external matter of making O's is just an illustration of the real issue. That is being people of integrity or wholeness in our speech, actions, and heart-level intentions. Ultimately, we must be truthful and faithful to our commitments, especially our marriage vows, because God is faithful to his vows. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for whole person righteousness. The whole person righteousness of the kingdom of heaven requires that we do not seek vengeance or self-determined justice. We turn the other cheek, as Jesus says. In personal conflicts, Jesus demonstrates that greater righteousness pursues creative ways of mercy. Creative ways of showing mercy and kindness that reflect the astonishingly patient love of God. The same God who the Old Testament describes as the spouse of Israel who faithfully stayed there for hundreds of years of their adultery as a people, their idolatry. He has an astonishingly patient, astonishingly patient love. Jesus teaches that whole person righteousness challenges us to forego retaliation and self-determined justice in favor of embodying that patient love, the love of Jesus. Flourishing are those who show mercy. Flourishing are those who make peace. Finally, Jesus commands us to love and pray for our enemies. And he primarily defines that to the extent of those who persecute you. And that's tough, isn't it? I feel like this, and I'm sure every moment in history is like this, but I feel like our time in history is so marked by division, so marked by easily seeing who the enemy is against us. It doesn't take much to identify that. So Jesus' words here can strike to the depths of our hearts and challenge us to turn from making enemies and how we treat them. Listen again. He commands us to love and pray for our enemies. In this, Jesus challenges us to see the inconsistency of a supposedly Christian love as one that only loves non-enemies. Only loves non-enemies. You see, to enter the kingdom of our Heavenly Father, one must have a greater righteousness than this, One must be like our Heavenly Father, who in his own perfect righteousness loves and cares for all people, the righteous and the unrighteous. And this is why Jesus says he makes his sun shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, there in verse 45. You know, not only that, what does John tell us? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, Jesus' command to love and pray for one's enemies is the glue that binds all these previous commands together and makes them work. After all, what is the summary of the law? What do we quote each week? What are the two things that summarize the law? Someone tell me. Love God, love neighbor. I'm glad y'all are listening. This is good. This is good. Love God, love neighbor. What heart-level disposition will compel you to resist anger and pursue reconciliation other than the patient love of God and a love for God at that? What disposition of the heart will guide you to avoid vengeful, self-determined justice and instead trust God to judge other than the love of Jesus who submitted himself to the cross, which is the ultimate submission to the judgment of God? Therefore, Jesus teaches us that true, surpassing, kingdom-entering, whole-person righteousness is seen in a way of life where our heart-level desires and motivations and the actions they produce align with God's nature, his will, and his in-breaking kingdom. This is righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And for Jesus, this is the key This is the key that opens the door to God's flourishing kingdom now and in the age to come. And all of this is, of course, impossible for you. I want to tell you, you can't turn that key. It's impossible for you. It's impossible for me. You and I, we can't turn the key that unlocks the door to God's flourishing kingdom by a righteousness, this whole person righteousness that God calls us to. Thankfully, though, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount isn't just about us and how we are to live. If it were, we might admire it as a fine piece of idealism, but ignore Jesus, who is the key himself to God's flourishing kingdom, because he is, as Paul and others remind us and teach us, he is our righteousness. He is our whole person righteousness. He is the righteousness of God, because he is whole, as God is whole. He is perfect, as God is perfect. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus. You know, there are times when the Sunday school answer is right. More often than not, it's about Jesus. It is the blueprint. This Sermon on the Mount is a blueprint for Jesus' own life. And if whole person righteousness is the way that reveals what God is really like, be whole as God is whole, and if this is the pattern of Jesus' own life, then Matthew invites us to draw this conclusion that in Jesus we see none other than Emmanuel, God with us. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just about ethics or how we are to behave. It's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus. It's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus. So whole person righteousness, the kingdom of God, and true human flourishing is indeed within your reach, yet it's impossible for you. It's impossible for you to attain on your own. But it's not always impossible. It's made possible when you turn and embrace Jesus. And now we come full circle to where we were last week. 
What does Jesus say? There's this whole vision of the flourishing kingdom that I offer to you. Repent for the kingdom. That kingdom is at hand. It's near. Follow me. And now we return right there. You see, Jesus refused the go to way of anger, retaliation, and self-determined justice. When they mocked him, what did he do? He didn't respond. When they struck him, he took the pain. When they put the cross on his back, he willingly carried it to the place of his execution. When they nailed him to it, he prayed. This is the most astonishing thing. He prayed for their forgiveness. Instead of allowing anger to smolder, Jesus, out of a profound love, took that anger of his enemies upon himself. And he died for them. You see, at the cross, reconciling love, that, that's the love that makes all of this work. The, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, that reconciling love. After the cross, this reconciling love is not simply an ideal to strive for. It is an accomplishment that has been gifted to us as children of God. You cannot do enough to get into God's kingdom. If you ever hear anyone just say, be better? No. You can't just be better and expect God to let you in his kingdom. That's exhausting. Because you don't have the ability within yourself to do that. Jesus, he has purchased the way. He has made the key that opens the door and he gives it to you as a gift. He gives you his righteousness, making you children of God. To love and pray for our enemies now is not a far-fetched idea. It is near to each one of us because Jesus has pioneered the way. And he has made it accessible for us through repentance for sin and faith in him. All of this is why we cannot lessen the demands of God's righteousness. There's such a temptation in every age, and especially in our own, to lessen the demands of God's righteousness. We cannot do that, nor can we lessen the, the demands for entry into Jesus' kingdom. We must receive them as they are because as they are, they will always drive us back to Jesus. Always back to his mercy and grace. Always back to the foot of the cross to learn again his love for us and the love he calls us to give towards others and again, they're at the foot of the cross to be filled up with his mercy and grace. Because it is with that profound love that Jesus teaches us how to love others and experience true flourishing. And it is with profound love that when we, fought, that when we fail to love, when we fail to be whole as God is whole, we are called right back into his outstretched arms of mercy and grace to receive us. I recently heard this question. Who are we that Jesus would have such high expectations on our lives? Who are we? We're God's children. What parent here, when you have a child, you're like, I don't care. Whatever, whatever route you want to take, that's fine. Lowest bar, that's okay. If you can't even make that, that's fine. Just get stuck right there. 
What parent wants the lowest, has the lowest expectations for their children? Every parent here has high expectations for their children. Now, sometimes that can be oppressive because we're human and failed. But God, our Heavenly Father, has high expectations for us, the same that he had for his own son. And not only that, we are not only just God's children, we are citizens of his kingdom. And what country, what nation, what kingdom does not have high expectations of its people, laws that we must follow? Everyone does. Who are we that Jesus would have such high expectations? We are children of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And because of his act of conquering love on the cross that took place there and was completed at his resurrection from the dead, we now have his heart. We have his heart. Remember, this is the greater righteousness described in the Pharisees, not just external actions, but also conformity and alignment between external actions and our inward heart, the heart level. But now through Jesus, we are given his heart. He sent out his spirit. He poured out his spirit who does what for us? Writes the law of God on our hearts as Jeremiah reminds us. And Ezekiel, as Ezekiel says, this is the same spirit that took our, our stony heart and removed it from us and gave us a heart of flesh that is sensitive to and responsive to the will and nature of God at work in our lives. And this gives us the ability this gives us the ability, even in our imperfection and frailty, and we all know that we are imperfect, we all know where we are frail, but this gives us the ability to be whole. To be whole. No longer broken, no longer divided, but to be whole. To live out whole person righteousness, always turning to Jesus, always falling upon his grace, always following him as he will say here in just a few lines in chapter 6, seeking first the kingdom of God and his whole person righteousness and in doing so, finding that we have already been given the most flourishing life ever. Now and in the age to come, what elsewhere the New Testament writers call eternal life. Seek Jesus. Seek his kingdom and his whole person righteousness and discover that human flourishing has already been granted to you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.